are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege. Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Classco Immigration Law Partners. Everybody. My name is Ron Clasco. I'm the managing partner of Clasco Immigration Law Partners, one of the largest uh, immigration law firms in the country and in the world. And I'm very pleased to be joined today by two wonderful lawyers at the firm, Anu Nair and Andrew Zeltner. Uh, and we're here to talk to you about the fact that we're in election season 2020. And make no mistake, immigration is very much on the ballot. The purpose of this podcast is not to tell anyone or suggest anyone how they should vote, uh, but it is to make it very clear that we're in an election where one candidate uh, stands for and has a history of seeking to significantly reduce and in some cases eliminate legal immigration. What does that mean? To some people, immigration and illegal immigration are synonymous. We're going to leave for another day the issue of illegal immigration, of border walls and people who cross the border illegally and people who stay too long. Those are important issues, but not the issues we're addressing today. The topic today is legal immigration to the US. It's interesting, if you look at public opinion polls, um, depending on how the question is asked, if people are asked, um, are you in favor of legal immigration? And they describe the difference between legal and illegal immigration. People are generally overwhelmingly in favor of legal immigration. If the issue is just, well, what do you think about immigration? A lot of times people will say, no, well, that's a problem. Thinking about illegal immigration. But if you ask the specific question, well, should a US citizen be able to bring a family member from overseas to the US? Yes. Uh, should a company that is establishing new operations in the U.S. be able to transfer somebody from overseas to run the operations in the U.S.? Yes. If someone has extraordinary ability in a field or is doing something in the national interest of the U.S., should they be able to come to the U.S.? Yes. If someone is investing a lot of money in the U.S., is going to create lots of jobs for U.S. workers, should that person be able to come? Yes. But are you in favor of immigration? Well, no. Well, this is what legal immigration is. The Trump administration came into office with a goal, very articulated goal, no secrets here, of reducing legal immigration by at least 50%. And they've been certainly somewhat and even largely successful in achieving that goal. Um, and there have been many reasons given or excuses given. The pandemic, uh, unemployment in the US, fraud in the immigration system, lack of funding available, um, many, many, many different reasons to justify many different ways in which they've attempted to reduce legal immigration. In part two of our podcast, we're going to talk about each of these different ways that have been used to reduce and in some cases eliminate legal immigration, um, what 
has been done to counteract that, what our firm has done to advise clients to deal with these restrictions. But today, in this first part of the podcast, uh, we want to discuss in a little bit more detail uh, what exactly legal immigration is, how do you legally immigrate to the country, why is immigration good for the U.S. and for the economy of the U.S.? So Anu, why don't don't you start it off? Um, What are the legal pathways to immigrating to the U.S.? Sure, there's four major pathways. It's employment-based, family-based, you have refugees and asylees, and also you have the diversity lottery. So for today, I just kind of want to focus on the employment and family-based because that's what we deal with and those are usually the largest numbers of immigrants as well. Um, And I'm going to start with a little bit of a history lesson because I used to be a teacher and I love teaching things. So if we go back to 1924, there was an Immigration and Nationality Act that was passed that essentially barred all immigrants from Asia. And during that time period, there used to be around 150,000 new immigrant visas that issued per fiscal year. What's crazy about that time period is a third of those visas were allocated towards German citizens and almost zero for Asians. Um, And then that changed around 1965 and there was a new Immigration and Nationality Act passed around then, which created the quota system that we know today. And basically the quota system says we have X number of visas that the government can issue per year. And depending on the category, you have limited number or a portion of those numbers. I always like to choose EB-5, which is an um, investment-based visa because it has a right nice round number of 10,000. And it's really easy to kind of give stats on that. So EB-5, which is an immigrant investor visa, uh, gets about 10,000 visas allocated to it per year. And based on the rules that were started in 1965, no one country can get more than 7% of that allocation. That means each country is only allowed around 700 visas per year in that category. So in theory, it sounds really equitable. It definitely sounds more equitable than the previous Immigration Nationality Act of 1924. But in practice, it ends up being something completely different. Because if we think about it, Small countries like Luxembourg has the same number of visas allocated to it, like large countries like China and India. Luxembourg has a population of around 600,000 people. India has a population of over 1.3 billion. And China has a similar population to India. But all three countries, for let's say EB-5 purposes, have only 700 visas allocated per year to their category. What that means is if you have, let's say, 50 people applying for EB-5 visas for each of those countries, at some point, Luxembourg is going to be able to continue to get visas without any delays because they're never going to reach that quota of 700. But at some point, India and China will reach that quota. Because the other thing to remember is that 7% is not just the primary applicant. So the primary applicant, the spouse, and any child under 21 all get counted towards that 700 allocation. So what ends up happening is that people 
from larger countries do get disadvantaged with this quota system. So let's go back. I mentioned that there are two major kind of pathways that we're going to talk about today. One is employment-based, one is family-based. So for employment-based, you have different visa categories. And my favorite ones to point out are EB1, EB2, and EB5. So EB1s, we're talking about multinational managers. We're talking about people of extraordinary ability or outstanding researchers and professors. People in those categories right now have a backlog, which means that it doesn't matter if you are the top scientist in the world, if you have a Nobel Prize, you're still waiting for a few years before you're eligible to get your green card based on our current quota system. I mean, could I interrupt? So do you mean to tell me that, so let's say the US government says that a person from India um, is exceptional and is doing something that's critical for the national interest of the United States. Uh, and all that's agreed to by the government. How long will it take that person to get to the US under our quota system? So that person can either try to get in on an EB-1, um, and right now they're processing applications from 2018, but it doesn't go month by month. So right now we're telling our clients, you're looking at about three to four years before you're able to get your green card, even if you are one of the top scientists in the world. But talking uh, what Ron said, let's say you have someone who is a top scientist, who's doing something that's in the national interest of the United States. Let's say they are doing research on COVID, a very kind of important topic right now. If you happen to be a scientist from India who's doing research here in the US and the government says, yes, this is clearly a vital topic for the US. And this is something that it won't just be for COVID-19, it could be for whatever happens in the future. That scientist, if they happen to be from India, they're looking at a minimum of a 50 year wait before they're eligible for their green card. 55 -0? 55 oh that is the minimum there have been a lot of newspaper articles especially from india that actually predict that it's maybe significantly longer than that so 50 years is the best guess right now for someone who applies today so mo most you were talking about investors mo uh, most of the eb5 investors i think have been from china so if uh if a Chinese person today wants to invest uh, $1.8 million uh, in, an, in a business in the U.S. that will create 10 jobs uh, or more, uh, how long will it take for that person under the quota system to come to the U.S.? And this is where it gets a little tricky because we are completely reliant on data that's issued by USCIS and the Department of State. And so those numbers really do tend to kind of change. Um, and so our predictions do change a little based on the new data that we received. But educated guess right now, if a Chinese investor were to invest $1.8 million, create 10 jobs, have their investment continue to be circulated and create jobs in the US, they're probably looking at a 12, 13 year wait easily before they're able to come into the US. In the meantime, there are investments here. It's already made. The U.S. is benefiting from that investment, but they're not able to get their green card for a decade or so. 
So in other words, people who think that it's a very good idea that if you invest a lot of money in the U.S. and create a lot of jobs, you should be able to immigrate here, or if you are one of the top people in your field, you're doing work in the national interest, who also say, but I think we have too much legal immigration. So basically, we're saying that with what we have, the waits are really incredibly long. Is it, is it better on the family side? Let's say I'm a U.S. citizen. And I want to bring my brother or sister from overseas to the U.S. Um, how long under the present number system that we have in place will that take? Decades, multi-decades. And the reason this is something that's pretty personal to me is because my family moved here in the 1980s. And my mom became a citizen around 2001. And then she said, OK, let me apply for my brothers and sisters. And the idea was that once she applied for them and her brothers and sisters were able to move here, that they would then be able to apply for their children or my cousins to move to the U.S. And at that time, when we had sought immigration advice, we were told, you're looking at a few decades before um, your aunts and uncles would be able to relocate to the U.S. Right now, the processing times for Indian nationals for citizens of uh, siblings of US citizens is 2005. And I will tell you, we looked at this um, record back in 2009. And in 2009, they were processing applications from 2001. So in about 11 years, they've only moved four years. So if you file an application now, you are at least a decade or more. And it gets worse depending on what country you're from. So if you take a look at the Philippines, Philippines, they're processing applications from 2002. Mexico, they're processing applications from 1998. So if you applied for your sibling in 1998, I'm hoping they're still alive to be able to get their green cards now. So it doesn't unfortunately get much better. Uh, no, I'm sorry to interrupt, but how about if I'm a US citizen and I wanna bring my uh... Uh, my son or daughter to the U.S. Um, and, uh, you know, he's uh, you know, happily married, got a family, and I, you know, but they want to reunite with me. Uh, will, I be able, will they be able to come here this year? Not a chance. <laughs> You're again looking at a multi-year wait. And this is where I've had situations where we've had U.S. citizen parents whose children were already 21 by the time they got their citizenship or started their immigration process. And so they filed in a category for unmarried sons and daughters of US citizens, which means that they were looking six, seven year wait before their children over 21 would be able to come into the US. But the problem is people don't wanna stop their lives. They want to get married. They wanna have children. They don't wanna completely have their life revolved around immigration. So unfortunately, a lot of these people end up getting married. So the sons and daughters of the US citizen get married. And as soon as they get married, they get bumped down to a different category. And those are significantly longer wait. So right now for China, if you are an unmarried son or daughter of a US citizen, they're processing applications from 2014. If you get married, you get pushed back to 2008. Again, Mexico is kind of the worst right now. If you were um, unmarried, they're processing applications from 1998. And again, we're talking 
1998, these people had to be over 21 years old. The children were already over 21 years old. And in the last, what, 22 years, we're expecting that they haven't gotten married or gotten on with their life. If they did end up getting married, processing time is 1996. It's a a long wait, (laughs) to say the least. So unfortunately, it doesn't get better um, if, if you have relatives here in the U.S. There is one so category. I, oh, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, so if I agree that all of these different groups of people that you've been talking about should be able to legally <clears throat> immigrate to the U.S., but I also kind of think that, well, there's kind of too much immigration to the U.S., what I'm basically saying is, well, yeah, they should be able to come here, but they should have to wait more than 10 or 15 or 50 years. That's the problem we have, is that this is what legal immigration is. And with the present numbers, the waits are what almost everybody would agree is way too long. Uh, And that's why it's really important, if you believe that legal immigration is is good for the U.S., uh, that we have to have sufficient numbers to be able to prevent these results that Anu's talked about. Drew, Drew, let's bring you into the conversation. So um, all of this is interesting, but in in the big picture, is legal immigration a drag on the U.S. economy? Is it good for the U.S. economy? Well, Ron, I don't want to bore you with statistics, but I want to start out with some because I want to lay the groundwork here. And immigrants account for about 13% of the U.S. population, but they start more than 25% of the new businesses in our country. So they clearly have a much higher propensity for risk taking that drives really our engine for economic growth. Um, Also, foreign born entrepreneurs, believe it or not, are founders of 51% of our country's billion dollar startups and approximately 40% of our Fortune 500 firms. So that shows you the impact they have um, around our country. And on a local note of the 19 Fortune 500 firms that are based in our state of Pennsylvania, 47% of these firms have a founder who was an immigrant or the child of an immigrant. So, so clearly, you know, one would think hearing these numbers that this would just be a cause for celebration, right? Um, you know, however, we still see this, this strong sentiment in, in our country that, that legal immigration hurts the, hurts the American worker. And Ron and Anu, where's the disconnect here? Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's, a loaded it's, question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we're the best ones to, uh, to answer that, but... Uh, I think when people hear the kind of things we're talking about, uh, they say, yeah, that, that's, I think that's very important. We do need to have those people in the U.S., but it's those other immigrants. I don't exactly know who they are or what they are, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about them. But when you talk about specifics, um, you know, it, it may be uh, their own au pair or their own housekeeper. Well, yeah, that's right. that person's very good. That's important, but it's the other guy that is the problem, um, and and I think that's where the disconnect is. Right, and and think about the you know the need to be on the cutting edge of changes in information technology. For example, um, you know if I had come to you in November and said, Ron, we're going to have to run the entire law firm remotely. I mean, I, I think you would have said that I was certifiably insane. 
right? But, you know, here we are now in August of 2020, and we're running our law firm very well with, you know, 90% of our staff working remotely, right? And we're doing that because of Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams. So we're essentially, you know, we're able to run our business because of the contents, uh, you know, by far and born um, IT professionals and executive leaders, right, who've allowed us to function, um, you know, and, and work remotely. So it's, it's been absolutely critical. Um, and, and one other area I wanted to talk about, um, you know, when you're when you're going through the legal immigration process, I think a lot of people also don't understand that there are safeguards uh, that are built into these processes to protect U.S. workers. For example, we have to adhere to prevailing wage requirements, right? We have to run a test of the of the labor market when you want to bring a, a foreign national here permanently. In some cases, um, the Department of Labor, for example, has a robust audit structure as well to audit employers to make sure that they're compliant. So not only are are are, are, are immigrants a, a great um, a great help in in, in advancing uh, the engine of our economic growth, but employers also have to go through a lot of hoops, right? And and, and compliance um, requirements in order to go through this process. Right, and one of the great things about having legal immigration and allowing people to come into the U.S. is that we benefit from the smartest minds. I remember reading articles from Indian newspapers from 1990s and 2000s complaining about the brain drain in India where the top IT people, the top business people were all moving to the US and bringing their background, their experience, their intellect and kind of growing that here in the US. And I mean, these Fortune 500 companies that you mentioned, Drew, they have, what, $13.1 trillion in revenue per year. That's a huge amount of money that immigrants are kind of putting back into the country. Um, and right. But Anu, but Anu, if we have the wait times that you're talking about, right, and we're talking about oh, several yeah. years, I mean, 50 years to bring employees, do you think, I mean, are we effectively creating the next Silicon Valley in Mumbai or Vancouver or Toronto instead of Austin or Detroit or across America? That, that's my concern. And I know, Ron, you spend a good deal of your time during um, at graduate schools and business schools across the country. And I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts about the mindset of these students. I mean, do they view the U.S. as a, as a place to do business and, and start their companies as they you know, move into the, uh, to the working world? Yeah, it's actually a big problem, Drew. Um, at, at, at many of the top MBA programs in the U.S., which produce the future entrepreneurs that you're talking about, uh, many of those programs are 50% are or more foreign national students studying in the U.S. Um, and they see roadblock after roadblock to establishing their businesses in the U.S. Uh, at the same time as other countries have the red carpet out for them. Uh, and so we are uh, losing the international competitive battle for the top people, the best and the brightest in the world and the future entrepreneurs are going to create the future businesses are going to employ the future american employees we're starting to lose that the restrictive system in the u.s is not in any way lost on these people u.s is still a a favored destination for a lot of people but there are a lot of people now who 
look at other countries before they look at the U.S. because of a more favorable immigration system. I've actually seen Canada. Canada has a proactive advertisement campaign, right, that says, here, come to Toronto, come to Vancouver. I mean, so they're proactively seizing, right, on, on our inability to have a, a, a functioning immigration system that, that, that's realistic, right, that, that, um, that, that individuals would want to take advantage of. We, as you know, Drew and Anu, we represent a lot of major U.S. companies employing people. Uh, there's not one of those companies that I know that is preferring to hire a foreign national over a U.S. citizen. If they hire a U.S. citizen, they don't need us. There's, they're not, they don't have to pay any expenses to hire the person. It's a major deal to hire a foreign national. It's a lot more expensive. Well, why do they? Because these people bring critical skills that the company needs. Uh, in, in many areas, for better or for worse, uh, there's simply a, a, a shortage of Americans who have the skills in that area. And to tell companies that, you know, we're going to create these restrictions that prevent or significantly delay you from being able to hire these people in the U.S., it doesn't mean the companies aren't going to hire them. It simply means the companies are going to outsource the work to the people overseas or often offshore the work. Uh, and, and have the actual plants or operations overseas. And that's totally contrary to what our U.S. national interest is. We would much prefer, as I see it, that they bring the workers to the U.S. to do the work in the U.S. as opposed to sending the work overseas. And Ron, right. you mentioned shortages. And, you know, we have addressed so many shortages in the medical field and in, in the teaching field because of immigrants. There were huge um, nursing shortages in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s that were filled by immigrant nurses who were able to relocate to the U.S. and work at hospitals. And without them, they would have been hospitals would have been significantly understaffed, and God knows what would have happened to patients there. And we have so many immigrant doctors who move to the U.S. and work in really rural, remote areas where U.S. trained doctors may not want to work. And so we have been addressing a lot of these medical shortages with our immigrant nurses and doctors. But for some reason, that's not mentioned in the media. It's not addressed in the media at all. Well, I, I hope that uh, uh, that was a, an interesting and elucidating discussion uh, to give you some background on what legal immigration is and why it's so important. Um, and as I said at the beginning, the reason we are doing this podcast is because we are on the eve of an election uh, where these issues are more at stake probably than any other uh, election in, in my lifetime. There's a night and day difference between the parties and the candidates on whether legal immigration should be enhanced, it's a, is important, or whether it should be reduced or, in many cases, eliminated. Uh, the, it is interesting to me that the, what we've seen in terms of the restrictions on legal immigration in the present administration have not come by accident. It is really very well planned. If, if you read, as I did, um, the writings of, uh, of Jeff Sessions or Steve Miller or various immigration restrictionist groups, you will see a list 
in, a, in advance of the Trump administration, a, a wish list of how to cut back on legal immigration. And three and a half years later, you'll see that those lists have actually been implemented. So that is a very, very clear difference people have. In part two of our podcast, we're going to cover some of the specifics. What actions have been taken by the present administration, very specifically, to cut back on each of these areas of legal immigration. Uh, we'll talk about some success stories of how we've helped our clients navigate through that. Uh, we'll talk about some litigation that have successfully challenged a number of these policies. So that's for part two. Um, in conclusion, we'd appreciate if you would uh, give us a five-star rating and a review. Uh, please email us at uh, podcast at classgolaw.com. If you have any questions you would like answered, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And sign up for our emails for the latest alerts and blogs at classgolaw.com. I'd like to thank Anu Nair and Andrew Zeltner for joining me. I'm Ron Clasco, uh, and we will see you again in part two. For more information, visit us at classgolaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed. Thank you.